Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name is Angie P., and I'm an alcoholic. First of all, I want to thank World Services, Doug R., and God for me being here. If I wasn't here, I wouldn't believe it myself, but I really want to thank my family in Cincinnati, Ohio, my family in Northern Kentucky. I love you, and I am so grateful that that statement, I am responsible, that you've lived up to. Because when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was beaten and I was torn down. And you put your arms around me. And you didn't listen too much to what I said, but you absolutely watched what I did. I have a loving sponsor. Mo, I love you. I have a loving grand sponsor. Patty, I love you. For the women that I I sponsor, I, I absolutely love you. Let me tell you a little bit about myself so that you will know that I am alcoholic. I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. Thank you. Some of my relatives here. Happy to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. Thank you very much. And back home, we live on a little red clay road in a white house. We got our water out of wells. We ate buttermilk and cornbread on a regular basis. We picked blackberries for fun. And I need to tell you that I'm one happy individual that I'm not there anymore. Because that stuff just never sat right with me. You know what I mean? I, I was introduced to the outhouse by my brother and, and found out that from the inside, you cannot get out. For some reason, it locked on the outside. Very strange, but hey, that's how it was. I am from a really decent family. I had flaming red hair and freckles growing up, and nobody else in my family did. And uh my brother shared with me that the reason why uh, I looked the way I did was because the mailman was my daddy. So whenever I saw the mailman coming with the mail, I'd be like, Daddy! And, 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 and he'd put his arms around me, you guys, and he would tell me how cute I was. And, you know, thank God for inventory, the big book, sponsorship, because I found out that that was a little pattern for me. That if you just put your arms around me and told me how cute I was, that we were, well, basically married. And it would be many years into the relationship when I would go, what's your last name again? <laughs> we moved to Cincinnati. My father had got transferred, and we moved from Cincinnati, and uh, we moved to a little town up there. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, when I first got sober, my mother was my biggest resentment. You see, my mother was not somebody that put her arms around me and told me how much she loved me. But Alcoholics Anonymous taught me that my mother's actions was what I needed to look at. My mother worked as a waitress, and she sent my brother, my sister, and I to private schools. So we moved up to Cincinnati, and uh, now I was a redhead, freckle-faced girl with a plaid skirt, a white blouse, black and white spaltons, and I got beat up on a regular basis because it just didn't look normal. But I have to tell you this. There was this girl. See, I've always had this fear. There was this girl named Squeaky. Squeaky was like 6'4 in the fifth grade, and, and her and her little posse, used to beat me up all the time. So one day, they stoned me coming home from school, and I ran in the house, and I said, whoo, mama, well, I made it in the house. Squeaking in was stoning me, 
and I made it in the house. And whenever my mother sounded like this, I knew it was trouble. She said, you know, Angela, at some point you're going to have to go out there and learn how to take care of yourself. So what I want you to do is I want you to go out there and stand up to Squeaky. I said, stand up to her. She said, yeah. And I went out there and I stood up to Squeaky and I said, my mother said I'm supposed to fight you. And Squeaky looked down on my little sorry butt and she said, well, come on. So I drew my fist up as tight as I could. And I squeezed my eyes as tight as I could. And I drew back and I reached up. I got her right here. Oh, my God. I got her right in the face. And she didn't even budge. I said, you get ready to kill me, ain't you? <laughs> but see, I got this mental twist called alcoholism that makes me remember what I should forget and forget what I should remember. And I forgot that Squeaky had just gave me the big beat down. But what I remembered was that I hit her. And from that moment on, I became a boxer. I fought everybody I could think of. When I came to AA, I told everybody, y'all better ask somebody about me. See, I'm known as the knockout queen downtown Cincinnati. You better watch yourself. If my sponsor told me to do something, I'd say, hey, now you better watch yourself. I done hurt many people. And she says, yeah, right. So when <laughs> I fought all the way up into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I just couldn't fight. So we moved to this town, going to Catholic school. And uh, my mother decides at the age of 12 for me that she was going to move us to a different neighborhood because we lived in the ghetto. She moved us to an all-white neighborhood. So from the age of 13 to 17, I wasn't even a black girl no more. I listened to Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. My favorite female singer was Janis Joplin. The first concert I ever went to was Led Zeppelin. <laughs> now, I got to tell you this. I got to tell you this. I was at the Ted Nugent Foreigner concert. And Foreigner was singing Feels Like the First Time. Man, I looked around that Coliseum. It was about 50,000 people there, and I didn't see one black person. I said, boy, I am bad. <laughs> and from that point on, ladies and gentlemen, I became a legend in my own mind. It didn't mean, it didn't matter to me what you thought. What mattered to me was what I thought. And whenever I would walk into a room, there was always music in my head. When I walked into a bar, there was always music in my head. Anytime I stepped into a bar, the words, profound words from the group known as the Eagles said, somebody's going to hurt someone before the night is through. Somebody's going to come undone. There's nothing we can do. Everybody wants to touch somebody if it takes all night. And everybody wants to take a little chance to make it come out right. There's going to be a heartache tonight. A heartache tonight. I know. So now, now let me tell you, I took my first drink at the age of 13. My friend Rebecca came over. She had a brown bag. And it was two bottles of Boone's Farm Apple Wine. See, I know that. That's right. That's right. Boone's Farm Apple Wine. Best wine in the world. Wasn't a grape in it. So I can tell you that what happened to me when I drank that bottle of wine did not happen to Rebecca that night. 
You see, I drank that bottle of wine and something hit the bottom of my feet. It was a warm, loving, fuzzy kind of feeling that rose up slowly through every ounce of my being. It was warm. Oh, it hugged me. It gripped me. It changed my look right before my very eyes. I no longer had red hair and freckles. I was beautiful. I had to hit Becky that night, the girl that I was drinking with, because, you know, I'm a boxer. And so as I began my drinking, and see, I'm not, my story is not one where I did a lot of fabulous things in my uh, life. When I took my first drink of alcohol, alcohol became my master from that time. I wasn't somebody who finished education. I didn't, I didn't go to school. When I was in school, I left because I had to go drink. I stopped listening to my parents. I just started doing what alcohol told me to do. I was working at a recording studio. My dad had got me a job there. I've been singing since I was three. My dad got me a job at the recording studio. So one day I'm in the bathroom and I'm singing. And, and you know, the acoustics is good in the bathroom. And, and I'm singing and I step out. And if you're an artist like me, you wait and have waited since you were little. I know I did. But that day when somebody heard my voice and they said, oh, my God, I cannot believe you sing as good as you do. Nobody has signed you yet. Come here. And that happened to me. I stepped out of the bathroom and there was a tall brother in a suit. He said, I can make you famous. That's all he needed to say to me. He could have had ten bodies in the trunk. Wouldn't have mattered. Because I was getting ready to get famous the easier, softer way. So I, against the wishes of my family, I went to Las Vegas with this man and I became a terror on two feet in Las Vegas. I was having a great time opening up for some of the biggest people and just drinking like, like I wasn't going to be able to drink ever. But see, this amazing thing started happening to me. It's called a blackout. And see, I started drinking and not remembering stuff. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought that if you drank a lot and you didn't remember that you had a really good time. And I'm sure that none of this has happened to you, but I begin to wake up with different people. I know it's not happened to any of you. Where the person laying next to you, we look at each other and we go, damn! <laughs> And laying next, to me, laying next to me would be a man that's got a one tooth and it's gold. And he says to me in the most country voice you can imagine, but you told me you love me. I said, oh boy, I'm an alcoholic, get in line. And so I'm out in Las Vegas and I'm doing all this stuff and I get in a little trouble out there and they kick me out. And uh, I come back to Cincinnati and with everything in me, I said, that was it. I'm going to come back and I'm going to do the right thing. And I came back to Cincinnati, and I meant that from the bottom of my heart. But you see, I didn't know that I had alcoholism. I didn't know that I could not not drink. I didn't know that without alcohol, I couldn't function. So I said to my mother, I said to everybody, I'm not going to drink. And that lasted me all of three weeks. And I began to drink again. And down in Cincinnati, you used to be able to get on the city bus on Sundays and ride for free. It was called Sunday Pass Riding. And one day, my brother and sister and I were all on the bus, and we went all over the place, and we went to downtown Cincinnati, and there was a corner of Liberty and Vine. And there was a little restaurant there, and when I looked over there, boy, it was lit up. It had pimps and, and, and prostitutes and, 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 and fishing in, in the bottom of men's shoes, and they were wearing these big suits and big hats. And, and I remember my brother looking over there going, boy, you couldn't pay me to go over there. And my little sister looking over there saying, ooh, me neither. And me sitting there thinking, shit, I'm going over there tomorrow. And so I began riding the number 20 bus all the way downtown on a regular basis, drinking with my friends, my buddies. I don't know about your friends. I had some friends out there. 
My friend's name was No Neck, Greasy Feet, and Tie-Dye. When I would bring these people over to my father's house, he would say, let, don't you let them sit on my furniture. I said, Daddy, these are my friends. Don't treat them like that. And I began drinking and hanging out downtown. And I began to get in trouble. See, when I took a drink of alcohol, it totally engulfed my life. And see, things happened to me like I would drink, I would end up in the holding cell. And the only way that I knew what I did was when that public defender would come and tell me. And when I was standing in front of the judge, and he would ask me how I plead, I really didn't know. But he said, no contest. Then they sentenced me to time. See, I know what it's like to be caught up in the grips of alcoholism. And so I go to jail, boom, I take the physical, they tell me that I'm pregnant. So I'm on my way to jail with a child growing in, on the inside of me, and I'm headed to the Ohio Reformatory for Women for some stuff that, that I didn't even really know I did. But the one thing that kept me from losing my mind was the fact that my son was growing on the inside of me. And every night I would rub my stomach and I would say, I'm going to get my act together, baby. I'm going to do what I got to do. And I meant that from the bottom of my heart. See, one of the reasons why I don't get on people when they drink again after coming into AA is because I, I'm powerless over alcohol and it dictates and manages my life. And every time that I said I was going to stop, I meant, I, I meant it. But see, I didn't know that it dictated and managed what I did. So I'm in prison. I have my son. The warden comes to me and he said, you need to come and get your, have somebody come and get your baby because of the amount of time that you're doing, he'll become a ward of the state. And I called my father and I said, Daddy, I need you to come up here and get my baby. And my, by that time, my parents had totally kicked me to the curb and my father and stepmother said, they'll come and get him. And they came up and get him. And y'all, I'll never forget that day, ever. Because he was in a little blue suit. And he was wrapped up so cute. And I made a vow to myself right there at that moment. I'm going to be a good mother when I get out of here. And I meant it from the bottom of my heart. But I got on that number, that, that seven, that, the, the bus down 71 going to Cincinnati. And I said, I'm going to see my baby. I'm going to see my baby. I'm going to see my baby. And I get to the Greyhound bus station. I'm going to see my baby. I get off the bus. I step on pavement in my mind. But you haven't had a drink in a while, Angie. Go have a drink. And I went to the bar, and I started drinking, and the next time that I saw my son, he was 10 years old. See, I don't struggle with the powerfulness of, of alcoholism. I'm well aware of it. So when I hear people say, well, you didn't love your kids when you were out there, let me share something with you. That's the, that's, that's, that's the, the wrongest statement you can make to somebody. Because I loved my kids, and every time that I drank from that point on was because I was horrified that I could leave this baby like it was a pair of jeans. So I went to the penitentiary, went back and forth to the penitentiary, and one day I was drinking alcohol, shooting some drugs intravenously. Somebody shot water in my veins. By this time I was living on the river in a, a, a boarding house for wayward women. And I was living down there, and, and I walked each block, and I just prayed to God. I said, if you just let me live till I get to this place, just let me live. I won't do it no more. And I got down to this place, and see, I believe in angels because there was a little blonde woman standing there. And when I walked in the door, she looked at me and she said, you don't have to keep living like this. And she took me up to my room and she put a cloth over my head and she began to tell me about Alcoholics Anonymous. She asked me if I would go somewhere with her and I did. And I went to 405 Oak Street. Now, when I got sober, it wasn't a lot of African-American people in Cincinnati getting sober. So I walked in with all these white people with white cups. Some guy was playing the guitar, singing John Denver songs. 
And I remember thinking, now these white people crazy. So we went up the steps going into the room. She said we was going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Went up the steps to go into a meeting. Some big biker guy grabbed me, man, picked me up and said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Squirrel. I said, man, if you don't put me down, and why they name your big butt Squirrel? So I go into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's a gentleman sitting up there telling his story, quite like how I'm telling mine. And I remember sitting in the seat watching him, and I was appalled at the things he was saying out of his mouth. And then everybody started laughing. I said, what the? Then he talks for a little while, and then you bust out laughing again. I said, this is crazy. So then everybody got up, connected hands, and prayed. I said, and they hypocrites too. Lord, they all going downstairs. They all going downstairs. So, uh, you know, I thought there was an African-American woman that worked at the coffee bar. Boy, I was so happy when I saw her. I ran up to her. I said, girl, these white people crazy. She said, keep coming back. I said, oh, no, they got you too. <laughs> I said, this is some separate wife stuff. So the gentleman's telling his story. And so, they, you know, they pray. And I, they say that, you know, we usually thank the speaker. I said, well, good, because I got a couple questions I want to ask. So when I go up, he reaches his hand, and he goes, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I pulled him close to me. I said, look here, brother. You know these people laughing at you, man. I said, ain't y'all got a helpline or something you could call, a 1-800 number you can call? Why are you up there telling all your business? He said, oh, sugar baby, you just keep coming back. I said, oh, no, you keep coming back. And I stayed around AA for a little while. I stayed around for a little while. Um, not really feeling like I was quite like y'all, but I stayed around for a little while. And I was an angry black girl. Everything was because I was black. If I was at the coffee bar and you didn't give me my coffee quick enough, I'd say, it's because I'm black, ain't it? Yeah, that's why I can't get my coffee. It's because I'm black. If I would be in a meeting and, and some woman would be giving her lead and she would say, you know, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't really like black people, but now I do. And I would be the one standing in the meeting, stand up and go, well, we ain't going nowhere. Power to the people. My sponsor, she's from England. My sponsor would say, would you sit down? I said, well, you know, I got to let these people know we ain't going nowhere. We in here for the long haul. Right on. So I stayed around AA for a little while. And uh, I uh, ended up drinking again. I mean, I know you ain't surprised. I ended up drinking again, and I figured since I had been around AA for a while, today would want to know, you know, hear my departure speech. So I went to the Wednesday night meeting, and they asked if it was any AA announcements. I said, the old-timer said, Angie, I said, look here, people. I'm going to roll on up out of here, and thank you for the really, 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 really big book. And uh, thank you for the coffee. But uh, y'all take care of yourselves now. Don't you know drinking will kill you? So I left. And I figured it out in like five minutes that the reason why I was in AA, because see, y'all was talking about God was using you as an instrument. I said, you know what? I think God using me as an instrument too. He want me to go find some black people and bring them into AA. So I became an evangelist for Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I got on the I got on the bus with my big book, and I said, the first brother or sister that get on the bus that appears to be drunk, I will carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. So a brother got on the bus. He was staggering a little bit. He sat down. I said, bingo. So I slid over next to him on the bus. I said, look here, brother. You been drinking? He said, I had a little something-something. I said, you know what? You might be an alcoholic. <laughs> so he started cussing me out, you know, telling me that, you know. And I said, you know, the people from the AA club told me that you would probably react like this to my information. So since you want won't listen, I'm going to have to do this. And I opened up the book <laughs> to how it works. And I stood up in the middle of the bus and I said, Riley, have we seen a person fail who is thoroughly, did you hear what I said? Thoroughly. Follow this path. Those who do not recover. So the bus driver said, oh, hell no. He said, you got to go. So he put me off the bus. I told him he was an alcoholic too. So I went down and I found some black alcoholics and I walked into the bar, me and my big book. And I pulled the plug out the jukebox. I said, black alcoholics, they got a place for you. It's called the Double A Club. They said, well, what you doing down here? I said, oh, no, I graduated. I graduated, and, and part of graduation is right here in step uh, 13. <laughs> Says that I'm to carry the mess. And, um, <laughs> and that's what I did. And so, you know, about this time, I don't mean no disrespect. I know I'm an alcoholic. But about this time, people start coming in with this little crack problem. I said, oh, no, we don't do crack here. This is AA. But you go sit over there at that table. Don't say nothing to nobody. And I'll be your sponsor. So anybody that came into Alcoholics Anonymous with a crack problem in Cincinnati, I was their sponsor. And it was amazing because they all sat at the table. Everybody weighed 90 pounds. Amazing. I asked them, do you stop at 90 pounds and then everybody comes in? And they all sat in the circle. Didn't say a word, but they all sat in the circle like this. I said, man, close your eyes. What, what are you doing? Why is your hair comb? What is wrong with you? When you come to AA, you got to comb your hair. Oh, you don't have a comb. Okay, but don't worry about it. And I'm telling you this to tell you this, because what I've learned in my sobriety is that when I stand in judgment of any person, place, thing, or situation, nine times out of ten, when I talk negatively about them, what I've done is I've just wrote my meal ticket to experience the same thing. And so I left, hey, oh, that's, oh, wasn't that profound? Boy, I tell you, I'm, oh, boy. So, I don't know, I'm, I'm almost out of, okay, I'm almost out of time. And then I got sober. <laughs> and so I went out. Let me tell you. I left Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went down there talking to them people trying to get them sober. And in the big book, it talks about in more about alcoholism, about, you know, the uh, guy went to a restaurant, see somebody about a car, yada, yada, yada. And suddenly the thought crossed his mind that he could put whiskey in his milk. Well, suddenly... The thought crossed my mind, surely I could have one drink, and I got my big book. Surely I should be um, um, guarded because I have the big book in the bar. And I asked the bartender for a shot of gin, and she gave me a shot of gin, and 45 minutes later, I was in the crack house. I ain't thought about smoking no crack. But you know where I went when I came back? To the round table. I weighed 90 pounds. This old-timer, when I was giving my departure speech, he put me out of the meeting. 
He was there that day when I stepped back into that clubhouse. And when he looked at me, he said, Angie, you're going to die. And I said, I know. Because see, everything you told me was going to happen, happened. It got worse, never better. But I'll be forever thankful for those people that stood at the door of Oak Street. And as dirty and as stinking and as nasty as I was, that you reached your hand out to me and you welcomed me into Alcoholics Anonymous. See, we got to be real careful about that. We got to be real careful about these people that come in and talking to themselves. You understand what I'm saying? Because it could be your next speaker. And so I came back into AA, and I love my sponsor, and I love my grand sponsor, but I'll tell you what, them were some of the happiest damn women I'd ever seen in my life. I said, y'all must be drinking. How can you be that happy? But I hung out with them, y'all, you see, because I knew that I could not drink again. See, it was to drink was to die for me. These women took me all over the place, took me to conferences, got me involved in institution meetings, had me in the book. Discussions was out of the question, my sponsor said. You go to big book meetings. You go to 12 and 12 meetings, and that was, that's what I did. And you know what? One day at a time, I haven't found it necessary to drink since June the 20th, 1991. And for that, I'll be eternally grateful. I am responsible. My sponsor and my grand sponsor showed me what it was like to be a responsible member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We had our issues. I remember sharing with my sponsor that because she was a white woman and I was black, that I would need to educate her on the civil rights movement. And what she shared with me was for me to, because I told her she was going to have a hard time sponsoring me being black and all. She said, I'd like for you to read the big book and show me in there where if I, uh, if, if I can't sponsor you because you're black, find it in the big book. Newcomers, that's how they get you in the book. That's how they do. They trick you. So if your sponsor tell you to find something in the book, it probably ain't there, but look for it anyway because you'll get sober. And I need to tell you that because my sponsor and my grand sponsor and the women that I sponsor and the old timers did the responsibility thing, I can tell you that along with a power greater than, I'm standing here today and it's an absolute miracle. An absolute miracle. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And let me tell you something. My sponsor got me busy in the steps. I started doing the steps. And I'm going to tell you something. Life began to happen to me. I didn't make it happen. God and Alcoholics Anonymous made it happen. The only thing I did was show up and do what you told me to do. Not what you suggested, but what you told me to do. Newcomers. If they suggest for you to do something, that's not what it means. They telling you to do it. Suggesting it's a nice way. So let me tell you, I got my GED in AA, and I got it in the mail. It was the happiest day of my life. Because, see, I was an uneducated, homeless alcoholic when I got to AA. And here I am, man. You tell me that God is not good. See, that's why he got us sober, so we can keep this thing going. Keep it going for me, please, because the buck stops here for Angie P. I'm in college. (laughs) Woo! Woo! I've been on the dean's list for three years. 
and they got me running a program. What the hey? Let me share something with you, and then I'm going to shut up. For my sponsor, I'm extremely grateful. For my grand sponsor, Donna, I love you. Doug, Derek, and Bob, I love you. CP, I love you. Cincinnati, I love you. Alcoholics Anonymous, I love you. Peace. Are you out there? <laughs> I'm Tom an alcoholic, member of the primary purpose group of AA in Southern Pines, North Carolina, and delighted to, well, to be with you. I can't see you, but I, I'm delighted to be with you. I, I, and I'm uh, absolutely thrilled to, to be here and to get a chance to share just a little bit with you. Don't have much time, so I'm going to have to talk fast. It won't sound like I am, but I'm going to be talking real fast. But being from North Carolina, that takes a long time. <laughs> uh, I, I really want to, want to say a, a, a big thanks to to Canada and and to, for hosting us in the country. <laughs> And to Toronto, the city in which we in which we sit, and the first city that has ever had the international twice. Thank you, Toronto. I think there's a message in that. This has been a great conference, really well done, well put together, and and I'm just delighted to have a little piece of it. Yeah, I, I'm. A, I, th I really thought. You know how we, we get sometimes. I thought, well, I'll probably be the token corrections guy with a little history of that sort of thing on the program. I swear to God, by the end of the conference, I felt like it was a status symbol. And we got a lot of that stuff going on. And I was just delighted that that book went to uh, Clint Duffy. I had the, the great pleasure of meeting him and doing some work with him. And, and uh, so that was a very fitting thing. And and, and I, I really appreciate you seeing that. I uh, also want to say hello to the to the uh, the new territory. I didn't even know it existed. Nanuya. I think they were trying to name it New York, but they were drunk, and it came out in Nanuyuk. <laughs> anyway, welcome. Eight hundred fifty thousand square miles of place for alcoholics to roam. <laughs> A lot of deja vu involved in this uh, for me this morning. Forty years ago, this date, 40 years ago, this date, I was sitting in this city in Maple Leaf Gardens at my first international, and I heard our founder, Bill, introduce the Declaration of Responsibility, and I what a great day that was. What a great day that was. And what a great experience to be with Bill, because during the course of that, that, that conference, I, I really understood Bill's vision and came to, to claim it as my own. 
It became my vision. And I left this conference with that vision beating in my heart. And the confidence in AA had never been stronger. At that time, I was a guy eight years sober. The clouds were just starting to open up a little bit so that there was some sunshine. And when I came here and moved into this world and listened to our founders share that vision, <clears throat> I left here a different man than I came in. And so it is really great to be back in, in this city and, and to be able to, uh, to reminisce a little bit about that. I, I, the other thing I'll just mention about that international, we'll get this out of the way and then we'll drink whiskey and throw up all that. The, the other thing I want to mention about that, a, a, a convention can be one of the loneliest places in the world. I'll guarantee you people have, there are people in this room who have spent this weekend as if the convention was behind a glass wall. We're still into enough isolation that it's almost like a, a, an unbelievable fairy tale scene. And it takes a while to grow out of that. When I came to the, let me offer you this for whatever hope it might involve. When I came to that, uh, that conference, I knew a few people. Oh, it might have been 18 or 20 out of the bunch that were here. And it, it was not a lonely place because I just kind of like to mix it up anyway. But what a contrast, eh? Today, when I come to this international convention, I think I know half the people here. And that's the miracle of hope in Alcoholics Anonymous. Never have to be alone again. And that is literally true. Literally true. <laughs> Now, I want to tell you a, 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 a little... Oh, by the way, I do have to tell you one other thing about Canada. I, I'm not only grateful for internationals, I'm deeply grateful to this country. Because I've been in the, most of the provinces except the Nunuk. I haven't been there yet because <laughs> I didn't know about it. But I've been all over this, all this dominion and, and I've had marvelous experiences all over, this, all over this place. And great memories of every place I've ever been. Uh, my sponsor is a, is a very shy, retiring, diminutive man who's of a, a Canadian and happens to be from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and his name is Cease. Uh, <coughs> I have a wife who's sitting out in the darkness somewhere in this room who's from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and uh, now we've Americanized her. We've almost taught her to speak proper English down south, <laughs> but she's she, she learning slowly. <laughs> That's been great stuff. I, I've got a lot of gratitude for, for Canada. I, I try to show my gratitude by sleeping with a Canadian woman every night that I possibly can. <laughs> now that I'm sober, it's my wife from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. <laughs> So, a lot to be grateful for. Now, let, let me tell you about me. I'm a, I'm just one of those, one of those sort of, well, I don't know if I was typical for the day, but I, I think I was a prototype of the type to come. I was one of those early basket chase type of people who just crashed and burned at a very early age. That's not unusual this day and time. Our world is riddled with people like me. But back then it was a little bit out of, out of the ordinary. And so I was just a guy who crashed and burned very quickly. I started serious drinking in my teens, and I'm going to go through it quickly because, I, I, well, I'm just that. And uh, the, uh, it went through in my teens. I fell in love with booze. I developed alcoholism by the time I was 18 years old. 
and I had a very chaotic life. Mine was 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 characterized by just a, an overwhelming record of failure. I, I screwed up everything I ever touched. I, I lost every job I ever had. Never held one for as much as a year. I was a real bad case. I was a guy thrown out of the military with an undesirable discharge when I was 20 years old. Went to jails a lot. Went to psychiatric, what do you call them, psych wards a, a lot. Went to any place that they captured drunks. If they captured drunks, I've been there. Never did go to treatment, but it, it hadn't been invented. We had very effective detox, but it was called jail. <laughs> I always like to tell people who say they can't get sober, don't bet on it, buddy. Smack a cop. You'll get sober <laughs> real quick. <laughs> I don't advocate for the, for the return of those good old days, but that was it. And, and so in the process of that bedlam called Tom I's life, I was going right straight down the tube. And I wound up as a young man living up in, uh, I'll let them remain, remain anonymous, well, no. They deserve to be known. I wound up at a place called Flint, Michigan. Only place I tell they go Flint. <laughs> I ain't going with you. <laughs> oh, that I say about Flint, it deserved a guy like me. <laughs> and that's where I really crashed and burned. Just came unglued. I wound up unemployed, darn near unemployable, and. Uh, Essentially, just kind of, I used to say live by my wits. That's not exactly true. I live by my lack of character. I was what they call amoral. I've never turned down anything on the grounds of morals or ethics or principles. I didn't even know what those were. But that's where I wound up. And as a young man, I reached a point where suicide was sort of a tempting thought. In my early 20s, when folks, most folks are worried about what to do with their life, I'm worried about how to end mine. Yeah, I wound up. Selling my blood in that city, five bucks a throw, just to survive and deal. I wound up surviving by, 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 by taking from other people, rolling other drunks. I don't really, I don't really put that in the immense column because it was sort of the food chain where I lived. You either, you were either the rollee or the roller. Somebody gonna get rolled, you know. And, so I just happened to be on both sides of that deal a lot. And so, so wound up and then, yeah, and, and, and so my life was just crashing ahead. This wasn't something, if there was any, any characteristic that was constant in it, it was that once in a while I would straighten up and I would do impossibly well. But I had an unusual propensity to take a drink at exactly the right time, wrong time and screw up the best of plans. And, and so in the meantime, I'm just crashing down. And then I finally, found myself, when I say found myself, I knew where I was. I, I was. I was aware of time and place, but I found myself sitting in a maximum custody penitentiary. That's one reason I said correction seems to be in vogue this, this weekend. I found myself sitting in one. Now, I'd, going to institutions was not a novelty for me, but going to a maximum custody penitentiary was. And that's where I, when I say found myself, that's where I was when the fog lifted. What our first speaker was talking about was that clarity. Where I, for the first time, that I had stopped long enough and taken a serious enough look at my life to see who I was, what was happening, and where I was going. And what I saw looked awful no matter which way you looked at it. The past was too bad to look at. The future was a dark cave. The present was was unbearable. And so that's who I was when it came to. To add to that, I was in there for a crime 
that's all too familiar to alcoholics. I was there for a crime that I committed in a blackout that I had no recollection of then or now or ever. But a crime that too horrible for punishment. There is no adequate punishment for the crime I committed. I could be nice and say that I had an unavoidable accident. The fact of business is I don't know. I couldn't even be a witness at my own trial. I had to listen as if I were on the jury. And I was, I would, I would have been for conviction at the end. There was no question that I did. What I had done was taken the lives of two young people with their lives in front of them whose only mistake was trying to cross a street in which I was driving. <coughs> so that was the reality that I came to grips with when I started to be aware of who I was and what had happened and, and what I was about. And, and that was absolutely the end of the line. I had snapped into isolation as severe as I'd ever known, and I'm confident without any question that I would have stayed in that isolation, that, that absolute tomb of guilt for the time that I remained in that place and survived. I never thought I'd ever come out of there alive and didn't really, really didn't care. Didn't care. All I wanted to do was disappear. He put me in a cell, sat in there, tried to do anything I could do to keep from, from, from thinking. And, uh, Thank God for people who recognize alcoholism and take actions to try to motivate doing something about it. Thank God for that. You know, thank God for a program we have in Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> that's called cooperation with the professional community. You know, sometimes we think that means mail them a pamphlet. That's not what it means. It means to engage and try to find out ways that we can cooperatively interact. I'm extremely grateful for that because whether we called it that or not, that's the thing that decided my fate. Because I'll tell you what happened. One day a guy called me out for an interview. He didn't have any trouble diagnosing me. Nobody ever had. I never had one diagnosis in my life. And my God, you drink a lot. Or you're a drunk. Or you're an alcoholic. He was the same. And the only difference was he added something I never heard. He said, we have an AA group here. And I think you ought to go. There was no command, there was no mandate, there was no consequences if I didn't, just a flat, friendly statement. You ought to go, man, they fixed it. And so I walked into my first meeting, Groundhog Day of 57, and by the amazing grace of God, I've never had a drink since. <coughs> amazing to me. <laughs> and I'd love to re- thank you very much for that. I'd love to regale you with a long story about that, because that, that, that journey back from desperation, that journey back from defeat, that climbing out of the ashes, God, what a thrilling story that is. And what an encouraging, hopeful story that is. Because I'm exactly the guy I was just telling you about. And I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. I was absolutely into withdrawal. We had a huge group there, 300 folks, first meeting. Nobody spoke to him except the correctional officer. I had him on the door, read my name, Iverson, said, sit down. I sat down and listened to my first meeting. And what I had walked into... Thank God again was an excellent group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not talking about a nice little gathering and a fine fellowship. I'm talking about an excellent group of Alcoholics Anonymous. As good as, as good as I've ever seen, I've been to them all over the world. But it's as good as any group I've ever seen. Thank God. I think that was maybe, not in spite of the condition, maybe because of it. Because of the setting and the environment. It took a strong group to do it. And I'm so grateful. What I mean by strong group, it was a group that had a purpose. It was clearly spelled out. We knew what we were trying to do. Tradition 5 was alive and well in that group and fully practiced. That's where I got introduced to a service ethic. 
that's where I got introduced to steps. That's where I got introduced to the real work of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's also the first place I ever experienced freedom in my entire life. In a maximum custody penitentiary, locked up like a wild animal, <laughs> and became free. Came free. If you don't think this is a powerful program, take a look. That's the first place they ever felt decency and honesty and integrity and worth. And they were products of this program. Nothing that has ever come my way in Alcoholics Anonymous has never been more richly effective than what I received in that penitentiary. And so I became a real functioning member of AA. And when they got, I guess, watching what I was doing, they figured I could do that pretty well on the outside. And they decided to release me. When I'd only been there three and a half years on a 15-year sentence and my, the minimum eligibility, and, uh, and so they released me. And when I left that place, I had uh, I had the dreams as any person has when they're coming back, whether it's in a risky treatment center or a penitentiary. Everybody comes out with the fears and uncertainty and anxiety and apprehension, and I was no different. I had all the fears, but also had the sure knowledge that I had a program that was a vehicle to a new life. And I knew that. I knew without any question whatsoever. And, and, and so I had some dreams, little dreams, real little dreams that, that were, that sound ridiculous to somebody who grew up in a fairly normal circumstance. Yeah. I wanted to be a citizen. I never had been. I'd never voted. I'd never paid taxes. I'd never had any concern. I didn't raise property values. I brought them down just by moving in. So I wanted to be a citizen. I wanted to take part in this thing called life. <clears throat> I wanted to work for a living, doing honest day's work <clears throat> for a decent day's pay. Yeah, I wanted. To, I wanted to have a friend again. I'd never had a real friend who wasn't a bad drunk in my life. I wanted to have a friend. Didn't know if I ever would or not. Wanted to be trusted. Didn't know if I ever would or not. Little dreams, eh? Little, eh? Hey, tell them in Canada. It takes me about a day to catch that and two months to get rid of it. But those were what I was looking for. I just wanted to find a place in the world. And, and so I hit the ground. I got immediately active in AA, and that is truly the understatement of the millennium. I was running like a wild goat. Man, I'm telling you, I had the divine privilege of helping start Alcoholics Anonymous in a city. And that is a marvelous, marvelous privilege. I highly recommend it. Well, I imagine up in the new, 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 they're going to get a chance to do some of that. And... Uh, it's a great, great feeling. And, and so I, I got off and running. And, and I want to tell you, just, uh, I should have looked what time I started. But Gary will tell me. And as big and bad looking as he is, I'll listen. <laughs> I, I will tell you, uh, uh, and let's just preface it just a little bit. I, I want to tell you about some things that, that, that happened in my life. Your number one, dreams come true, because every dream I ever had came true, and some I wouldn't have dared dream have come true. And that is so, so absolutely true. And, and, and that's, to, to me, it's, it, it's, it's predicated on two, two things that are basic principles of AA in my mind. One is that miracles happen. Now, I'm a pretty practical-minded, pragmatic sort of guy. I'm not some mystical magic show guy. I'm a deeply spiritual man. I believe what the book says, the spiritual life is not a theory. You've got to live it. It's either everything or it's nothing. So I'm a spiritual man in everything that I do. 
And so I think the spiritual life is not a, not a theory. And it's, as a result of that, miracles happen. And I don't put a lot of, of sort of mystique on a miracle. To me, a miracle is what occurs when preparation meets opportunity and God does the introduction. And that's when miracles happen. And God knows how many I've had in my life. And I hope you have too. Miracles happen. The other thing that's not a theory to me, it's something I absolutely know, is that when we turn a broken and wasted life over to this simple but powerful program, and God's got work for us to do, the walls come down. And I don't care what the walls are, the walls come down. I meet people all the time who are imprisoned by their past, who are imprisoned by their fear, and I'm here to tell you, that the walls will come down. If I give my life to this simple program <coughs> and take the actions, my God stuff will happen. And what happened with me? When I hit the street, I got immediately active, went to meeting the first night every night for a long, long time. And uh, got, guys got me involved in prison. I didn't, I didn't know I was going to be able to get back in. A, well, I thought I had a chance of getting back in, but I didn't think I was going to get to go visit an AA group in one. Take a week as I said, guys said, come go with us. And I said, where? They said, jail. I said, hey, not going to let me in. I'm just out of a maximum custody joint. Ah, come on. It's no problem. We walked in. Two months later, I was named outside sponsor of that prison. I'm just out of maximum custody. I'm still on parole. And for God's sakes, they make me a trusted servant, eh, to look after a program in a prison. That's an unbelievable thing to me. <laughs> and I could have been more honored if it elected me governor. Good God. A train of total affirmation. About the same time, a pro guy came to me one day and said, Tom, you real accurate as anything. He said, I thought you go try to tell me to slow down. I knew I wouldn't. Because parole was not my lifeline. AA was my lifeline. <clears throat> so I, I knew I wouldn't slow down. And, and he said, real active. I said, yeah. And, and he said, wouldn't it help you if you could drive? Well, for obvious reason. When I'd left the state of Michigan, letters that big on my favor, this man's never operated a motor vehicle, this man never drank alcoholic beer. I took both of those as facts of life. And I never believed I'd ever operate a vehicle. I wasn't sure I ever wanted to because I'd done the horrendous damage with one. So <clears throat> so he said, well, let me check it out. A little lady called me, asked me to meet him uptown in my, in my city where I live. And... Uh, Walked in, met him, he and my, my pro guy and another guy were standing there talking. I didn't interrupt him. I just sort of let him talk. And they finally turned around to me. The guy introduced himself that I didn't know he was the driver's license man. Chatted just a minute, not about driving, just about coon dogs and possums and stuff like that. And when we got through chatting, he handed me a driver's license. Didn't even ask me if I could drive. <laughs> no test. Road, written, verbal, nothing. <laughs> Didn't even pay for it. You know it can't be legal. <laughs> but I've been driving ever since. <laughs> when God's got work for us to do, the walls come down. If I had been trying to con and manipulate that into happening, I would be walking today, and I believe that. <laughs> so miracles happen. I elected DCM five months after I was out. I'd, I'd gone to two years of Michigan State while I was locked up, but I hadn't learned how to spell DCM, so I wasn't really sure what it was. But I got elected, and same guy who wondered if I'd ever be trusted. Hey, I'm asked to be the trusted servant for 15 cities. 
amazing stuff. Two years after that, I got a call one day from uh, state capital in, in my state. A guy on the phone I'd met once, and, and uh, just for a minute, a few minutes, he worked with the prison system. So he asked for Mr. Ivers. I got on the phone, and he said, said Mr. Ivers, we're, we're expanding the rehabilitation program in our prison system. We wondered if you might consider accepting a position. And the first thing I said, you can well imagine, I said, do you know who you are talking to? And he assured me that he did. He said, we've checked you out. And, well, of course they had. And, and, and I said to him, just spontaneously, I didn't have to think, I said, my God, man, I'd rather do that than anything in my, that I could imagine. But inside, you know what I said. There ain't no way. The day of that phone call, there had never been an ex-con hired into a prison system, and I knew they weren't going to start with me. But if they were going to do it, they had to start with somebody. <laughs> and I guess I was somebody, <laughs> and, so, and so they did. And, and <laughs> so, to remind you again, when God's got work for us to do, the walls come down. I don't care what the walls are. And, and so I went to work scared to death, as you can well imagine. I'm the only guy on the planet with that experience. Who do you talk shop with? There ain't nobody else. You know, so my close confidant was my boss man called God. That was close and very, very essential. The other thing was AA tradition. Tell you what, AA traditions are a fact of life in this guy's life. I practice them in everything that I do. I've used them more in my professional career than anything I ever learned in college. Far more. Far more. Because all it's about is how to get people to work in unity. And that's what they're about. And that's what we do in the world. And, and so but what that's what guided me through that uncertain ground of trying to figure out how to be the man. Am I professional? Am I one of the guys? Am I going to be a hoodlum hero with tabloids out and all this? And so what I decided to do was what the principles say. To take my place. If I'm going to take the pay, I'm going to do the job. And I became a professional. And I finished my education in correctional administration. I wasn't ambitious. I just got tired of being the dumbest guy in the room. And so I, just, I went back and got my thing just so my resume, resume wouldn't look so weird. You hate to put mental hospitals and jails and this. <laughs> you got to have a little something else. I didn't need it for my career. My career was taken off like a rocket. When you do good work and you work hard, if you don't watch it, you'll get the freedom principle set in. You'll get elevated to your level of incompetence. And uh, I think that's what happened to me. I got started booted up. And so I went into supervision management, and then one day the head of our system asked me to come by, and he had something he wanted me to do. Normally he wanted me to pinch it for him somewhere, make it a talk or something. So I went by, what is it, boss? He said, Tom, I'd like for you to take over an institution as administrator, the warden, as it's called in a lot of places. And uh, now I'll tell you, it's one thing, I was in the system, but I was on the good guy side. You know, I, I loved that mud wrestling with the guys. And, and uh, when he told me that, I mean, he's talking about being the man. I didn't want to be the man. I, I said, Jesus, I didn't want to be the head screw in this place. I, I, I just want to sort of duke it out with the guys. And, and then uh, I said, will you give me some time to think about it? And he said, well, of course. Take five minutes. <laughs> I gratefully took the five minutes when I prayed hard in the bathroom. That's where I do my best praying. Did some just a little while ago, right back here. Good place. Good place. Got sound effects and everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I went out and thought about it, and, and then I, I went back and I said, okay, I'll do it. And that started an increment of my career that I spent about 20 years. And my basic MO in the prison system, I'm I kind of like Gene from California said in the workshop yesterday, I, my real, I had a job description, but my real mission was to shut those suckers down is what I was trying to do. And so <laughs> I had a great career. I had I had a wonderful career in the sense that the reason the man wanted me to take that job is that I'm a I'm a creative thinker type of guy. If you want somebody to run something, don't get me. Because I'll guarantee you I'll make something else out of it by tomorrow. Yeah, I'm a guy I'm a guy who who if it's if it's in place it's old. And so I'm working on plan B. And, and, and so that's the way I approached that. And, and so I had a chance to do some tremendously challenging, rewarding things. I had a career that I wouldn't have traded with Bill Gates. Absolutely super. <clears throat> Finally found out I was the oldest rat in the barn. I just, <laughs> I had to think about it. I, I mean, I'm one of the few people, there's several of us here, but there are not many of us that were here for the 40 years ago for the uh, convention. That was here, and so I wound up being the oldest guy in the system. I never wanted to be that, and so I retired. And so I had no. I'll tell you one thing: if if you were, and I've seen some people as old as me here. That if you are somebody that's looking at retirement and you're active in Alcoholics Anonymous, don't give it a second thought, because what a marvelous thing when I retired to see that my decisions about retirement were already taken care of. I had a way of life second to none. And so I was busy the day I retired. I've never been busier in my life than I am right now. And, and I'll tell you what I want to wrap up around, and I don't have a clue where we are, but I'm just going to go hard as I can. Gary, just tell me when I'm done. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I, I sort of build that around, and really what I'd like to finish up with here today is, uh, you know, in our book, if we don't watch it, We'll turn AA into a something where we think it's all about fixing me. Where every meeting, it ought to be viewed in terms of what it will do for me. And if you look closely at what our book says, and I can't, if I quote a page number, you better check it out because I guarantee it'll be wrong. And I won't get the quote exactly right, but it'll be close enough that you can identify it. But if you look at particularly in that section right after the promises at the end of step nine, it moves into telling us what to do with the new freedom we found. And what we found to be able to look people in the eye and not have to be guilty of being able to be free and to function in this world with some, some value. And, and it gives us real clear stuff for that in, in that little section right after nine where, where it says something like this. Of course we're working on ourselves. Of course, we're, our problem is fundamental. But our real purpose is to be of maximum service to God and those around us. That's our real purpose. <laughs> in, in, a, in, in another place down there, in another place down there, it, it talks about that you haven't gotten through that process of amends, it says our task now, in words to that effect, our task now is to grow in, in understanding and effectiveness. In understanding and effectiveness. And that's what spells out my dance card for what I want to do with my sobriety. And, and let me just ask you to give this consideration. That 
I've, I'm doing things, in, I'm into my 49th year now, and I'm doing things that I did 48 years ago. But I'm doing a whole lot more. I'm doing some of those same things because they're fundamental. The most noble that we ever are as a fellowship is when we do a one-on-one with another alcoholic. There's nothing more noble in AA than that. Fundamental. Fundamental. And it's great work. There's nothing gives you a greater feeling. But is it enough? If I want to be of maximum service, I believe that I've got to get to a point where I look beyond my own shadow. I've got to look beyond what's just right in front of me, of what I can just personally put hands on. If I want to be of maximum effectiveness, I have to widen that sphere of, 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 of concerns that, that, that we have. If I want to be of maximum now if all I want to do is feel good and, 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 and focus on me, then I don't need to pay attention to this. But if I really want to be somebody who feels like they're of maximum service and therefore maximum reward, then I need to take a look and realize that while I may be a wonderful person, <laughs> there's only so much I can do individually, head to head. And that ain't enough for me because I don't think that's maximum effectiveness. And so what we do is, is I start thinking about my group. My group's not just some place that I selfishly cherish because of what it gives me. It's the place where I do my work. That's where I get my work done. That's where I troll for drunks. That's where I, I, I work with people. And my, and my group needs to be a healing place. It needs to be an excellent group where the solution is put out on the table every single meeting. And mine is such a group. And... <clears throat> Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm grateful for that. I am truly grateful for that. That's the fundamental building block of AA is that strong home group, not chat shops, strong home groups. And, 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 and it's not enough to just be, I'm not one who says I belong to the best group in, in the world. I don't. I belong to an AA group. And it's a good, effective AA group that does a lot of service work, a tremendous amount of service work. And, and we're well rewarded for that. But it's not enough to just be a good group. What kind of a neighbor am I? What kind of a neighbor are we to the groups around us that may be struggling and don't know the way? Now, how well do we do with that? How well do we do with the... He said for me to quit. Now, he doesn't realize the guy from North Carolina takes him a little while to quit. It takes about two minutes. And so, what, uh, what this all leads to is that that just exponentially grows when we start looking at ways we can be of help. last thing I'd like to leave with you is this. I'm, I'm grateful that the theme of this conference is the one I heard here 40 years ago. And I'd like to ask all of you to really read that, read that declaration of responsibility. That's not a collective pronoun. It says, I am responsible. Having been given the gifts I've been given, I am responsible. When anyone read, anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand to be there, and I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. I don't care whether it's in Nanunuk or India, where they've got 30,000 and a whole lot of Indians. We've got a lot of work to do. I hope that you'll study that declaration, take it seriously. Thanks a million.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.